Okay. All right. Revelation chapter 4. Got that? Revelation 4. Last time we were together, we read uh, chapter 4, but we really didn't get into the text because we were still covering some introductory material. Uh, We took a step back to remind ourselves of the big picture and where uh, history is going, history from the beginning and in very sort of broad strokes, and this is the way we kind of laid that out with creation to the fall to the promise, uh, that first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3, that the Lord would send a a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, Uh, and then we have redemption sort of unfolding throughout the Old Testament and certainly into the New Testament and the Gospels, Um, and then uh, ultimately this this, uh, phase of, of restoration as we see those things sort of uh, alluded to throughout the Gospels in the book of Acts, given to us in various uh, descriptors throughout the epistles, and then, of course, we'll see a lot of emphasis on that in the book of Revelation. So that is the sort of the plot line of God's kingdom program. Uh, We said that God's kingdom is a major theme in Scripture uh, because the idea of God's kingdom uh, encompasses every stage of biblical revelation, Uh, But we also said that we have to keep in mind that there are multifaceted dimensions of God's kingdom. And we considered two of them. I have them up on the screen, God's universal kingdom. That is really referring to God's uh, absolute sovereignty and control over all of creation from heaven at all times. And so it really is is the broadest, I guess, way you would think about the kingdom of God, and we see passages, again, in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that emphasize that, that aspect, uh, the fact that God is sovereign and that He reigns over all. But there's also this, we call this uh, the mediatorial kingdom, which has special reference to God's reign upon the earth through mediators, chosen mediators or representatives. So uh, God is king of creation, But God has also determined that man, and we saw this in Genesis 1, his image bearer should rule and subdue the creation on his behalf, which man obviously failed to do. But the ultimate man, as we'll see in the book of Revelation, the ultimate man, ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, will certainly accomplish that. And when Jesus successfully reigns over the earth, the mediatorial kingdom will be brought into conformity with God's universal kingdom. And at that point, as we said, God's will on earth will be done as it is in heaven. That is what we are praying for. That's what Jesus told us to pray for, that that kingdom would come in that mediatorial sense. And so we have these different aspects of God's kingdom in Scripture, and we need to keep that in mind as we work through this book, because we're going to see different, we're going to see passages in Revelation that emphasize uh, one or the other or both. And so you just have to know there's, there's sort of different different ways of, of, uh, of, of looking at this. Uh, now, I told you when we uh, got to the end, last, the last time we were together, the end of, end of class, uh, that I was going to give you some key interpretive principles for studying Revelation. Um, I'm going to do that soon. I'm tr- I'm, I'm, what I'm going to probably end up doing is just doing that in print. So rather than taking a lot of time and walking through all that in a class... Uh, I'm going to probably give you something that you can hang on to. I'll I'll walk through it, but it will allow me to get through it much quicker. Um, I do want to give you an an outline of the book um, and then get into chapter 4 today. So let's just begin with our outline 
for Revelation. Uh, now, it's my conviction, and I've shared this already, that the events of the book uh, are mainly sequential and flow naturally from the threefold division given by John in chapter 1, verse 19. So if you want to just put your finger in chapter 4, flip over quickly to chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, Therefore, write the things uh, which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So this, this, is the, this is the outline that we derive from that verse. Uh, this is sort of the structure that we're going to, to use as we, as we work through this book, uh, sort of uh, verse by verse. So we have this first section, this uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 1, verse 20, uh, this past dynamic where we have and, and find a vision of the, uh, of the prophet which prepares you for what is to come. This is the vision of the risen Christ. Uh, we covered this uh, when we were working through those chapters. And so this refers to that phrase in chapter 1, verse 19, the things which you have seen. Uh, some have called this the preparation of the prophet or his past vision. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 1 to the end of chapter 3, this is that present work that Christ is doing as he moves in and through his people to challenge his people to be faithful and to prepare for what is to come. These are the things which are, uh, again, if you want to just sort of summarize that, it's the preparation of the people their, their, or their present condition. And then beginning in chapter 4, really through the first part of chapter 22, this is the future prophecy and prediction about Christ's appearing and victory and the judgment of the wicked. This is the things which will take place after these things, uh, or also from chapter 1, verse 1, that opening verse, the things which must soon take place. And so that's a big section. That's what we're entering into this morning. But um, again, there's a, lot, there's a lot in there, really from chapter 4 all the way to uh, through chapter 19, verse 21, we have God's wrath. This is the uh, this uh, time time of trouble that will overtake uh, the world. Um, it is a time known to the Jews as the messianic woes. This is the the God's the display of God's wrath on earth. This is the great tribulation. Uh, all of those things. Daniel calls it the seventieth week. That one seven year period still left in which God will deal with Israel. It is Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, a unique time with, when ethnic Israel will be dealt with during the tribulation so that the non-elect can be judged and the remnant be brought in according to Romans chapter 11. In chapter 20, uh, we have in that first, at least in those first 10 verses, the binding of Satan in a thousand-year kingdom, uh, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, and then... In chapter 21, verse 1 to 22, verse 5, the new heaven and new earth and the holy city. So this is the publication of the prophecy uh, or its future expectation. And then we end in really chapter 22, verse 6, through the end of the book is is sort of a a call and exhortation, uh, pleading with Christ to come quickly and Christ himself calling his people to be faithful. So that's uh, that's kind of where we're headed. We'll refer back to this. I said we're going to, of course broaden this out, give us a lot more detail, This particularly this last section. If you're looking for something more simple, <laughs> here's the simplified version. Revelation 1, what you've seen, chapters 2 and 3, what is now, chapters 4 to 22, what will take place after 
these things. So you remember that in the first portion of this prophecy, which, is, which, which it literally is, that the Apostle John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and his first vision came to him, and it was a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his people, right? The sovereign one, the, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the beginning and the end. And John, the text says, heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. That, that is chapter 1, verse 11. Verse 12 says that he turned to see the voice that was speaking with him, and when he did, he began to witness the unfolding of the vision of this great God and Savior, the Sovereign Lord Himself. Then chapters 2 and 3 were all about the Lord in the midst of His people. So there had to be very specific commendation uh, given to some churches that He mentioned, and there had to be very specific words of, of correction and rebuke and calls to repentance given to other churches. And we spent, as I said, many weeks in those letters back in the, back in the spring and the summer. Letters from Christ to specific messengers who were part of those churches to be delivered to those churches. And John tells us what the contents of those letters were so that we would have them down through history in the lives of God's people. So that was important because God, God was about to unfold some, some amazing things, some, some amazing dramatic realities, not only as John is carried off in a new vision into heaven, but also from chapter 6, the frightening reality of God's judgment that would be coming upon the earth or coming, up, coming upon the people who dwell on the earth. So John was the chosen one to receive the vision of chapter 1, the only living apostle in prison on the island of Patmos. But as soon as those letters were revealed and sent via the various messengers to those churches, it seems as if John went back into this sort of settled state. So uh, but in other words, what we're going to see as we go through is this is John. You have to remember at the end, he's recalling these various visions. And so you're, you're trying to figure out how he received these visions and sort of the, what happened. And, 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 and what, I, what I think happened is that after he received this initial vision in chapter 1 and it was given instruction to write these letters to the various churches, that that was done. In other words, John followed that command, the command of that, that instruction from Christ, and those letters were sent. And at this point in the apocalypse, in chapter 4, John begins recording what is really the heart of the book. So the prophet has been prepared to receive it through the vision of Christ in chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of the Roman province of Asia Minor have received their instructions regarding the spiritual and those moral and ethical preparations that they needed in light of that vision and the prophecy. And it now remains to, to move on to the prophecy itself, uh, in other words, with the things which must soon take place. So let me just read for us, and so we won't take the time to read through the whole chapter, um, just to save us a little bit of time. But let me just begin there in Revelation 4, if you're there, verse 1. After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, 
which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. I put this up here just because I know many of you use the English Standard Version, King James, various versions. Uh, This is the New American Standard. So after these things... Uh, this, this opening phrase really indicates that, that this is a transition in the book, a key transition. A transition from one thing to another thing, in this case from one vision to another vision. That is to say that it denotes the sequence in John's reception of the revelation. And it marks the beginning of a new vision as it does in other places throughout the book. And so we will see... This phrase, as we work through the book in other places where we'll, we'll find this it's phrase, meta tauta is the, is the phrase in the Greek, but it's basically translated after these things. So this is going to be sort of a phrase that kind of keeps us moving as we go along. It's like sort of, a, and it, you go through the Gospel of Mark and you see this, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. It's sort of, it's a, it's a literary way, a device of sort of moving you through these various things. And in this case, this indicates that there's, there's a, a new vision that John is receiving, and then we'll see other places where it's used as well. So some uses of this phrase in Revelation indicate the sequence of fulfillment of events prophesied within a vision, um, but that is not really the main force in this verse. Uh, in, in this particular phrase here, it's talking really more not about the fulfillment of those of prophecies, but it's talking about the order in which John has received these visions. So in this instance, we're introduced to a new section of the Revelation as the scene changes from a picture of the glorified Christ walking among the churches on earth to that of the Creator God in the courtroom of heaven. In a sense, and again, we don't have time to unpack all these things and go to every cross-reference, but we'll try to make references as we go through the study. But in a sense, we could say we we leave the church age and we go from earth to heaven. In fact, there's two things, and this will, if I get this thing in print, these interpretive principles, I may include this in there, but there's things particularly that you have to pay attention to in Revelation. One are locations, and two are, are words that indicate timing. Okay, because there's a lot of there's a lot of things that tell you this is happening and this is happening and then this happens and it lasts for so many days or so many weeks or so many months or so many years and then this happened and so we'll see that the, the, the sequence of those things is very important. Uh, it's not always one thing and then that ends and then something else begins. Sometimes there's overlap, so we'll have to figure that out as we go. Location is a big deal. In fact, you could trace sort of in Revelation just based on location alone, are we on earth or are we in heaven? Because you're going to be bouncing back and forth throughout this prophecy in those two places. Or think of it this way. The first vision of the book begins in chapter 1, verse 10, where John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and it runs through the end of chapter 3. That's the first vision. So John had that vision, and he obeyed that vision by recording it, and writing and sending those letters to those seven local churches. But now, John has a new vision, which likely began immediately thereafter. So there's there's a relatively short break in John's ecstatic state. But here, he moves into a new phase of his revelatory experience, 
and the majestic figure that first dominated his attention, the Lord Jesus as head of the church, and the one who is sovereign over the churches and their messengers is no longer the focus. So who is the focus? Well, verse 1 gets us into this, right? After these things I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. Again, this is not with the physical eye, but in, this is in prophetic vision. Uh, with the eye of ecstatic vision, John sees a door, not just any door, but, but like a, a door set in the sky, standing open, perfect tense, literally a door already having been opened, permitting entrance into heaven, which chapter 4 and following describe as the dwelling place of God the place where Christ ascended following His resurrection, but also a place of conflict, according to chapter 12, verse 7, and one that will eventually see destruction, according to chapter 21, verse 1. So this door was already open prior to John seeing it, and and now stood ajar, a door that provides passage for John to heaven to be shown the events recorded there hereafter. In fact, John spends much of his time, as I said, in heaven through the remainder of the apocalypse. So in this vision, he comes to recognize an object before him, this door. And as he's contemplating this door opened in heaven, he receives very specific instructions. Notice, the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, or maybe a better translation, The first voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said. In other words, this is the voice John heard at first on the Lord's day, which sounded like a trumpet, right? That was chapter 1, verse 10. Again, you have to remember that that as John writes this book, he's trying to recall details of an experience that is wholly in the past. Right, And so he's connecting. He wants you to understand that the person that is speaking here is the one that spoke back there. Right, So there's a voice like the sound of a trumpet, not a trumpet, although there are trumpets which will attend significant events in this book, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, for example, but a voice as of a trumpet signifying its power and the attention it commands. And this trumpet comparison is, is appropriate for the voice's introductory function. And so it, the trumpet has this sort of function of sort of calling you to attention, to sort of a introducing something or about to announce something that is, that is significant. So this same voice from Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, beckons John to heaven saying, come up here. Of course, this is the voice of Jesus Christ which becomes clear as you read on in chapter 1. And so what you have to do is you take chapter 4, verse 1, and you realize that's a reference back to chapter 1, and then you go back to chapter 1 and you see who is that in chapter 1. And as you work your way through chapter 1, what you realize is that this is Jesus Christ. Okay? So Jesus Christ spoke to John in John chapter 1, right? And then John has this vision of the risen Christ, and then here we have again in chapter 4, verse 1, Christ inviting John, right, to come. Unfortunately, many, many, if you have a red-letter Bible, uh, some of the red-letter Bibles 
uh, are, are not willing to, to identify the voice in chapter 4, verse 1 as being that of Jesus. And so that, that throws you off. So just, just a, a note, I have, by the way, a red-letter Bible, so I'm not criticizing red-letter Bibles, right? They're, they're, I'm a visual person. It's helpful. <laughs> but just a quick note, it's not inspired, right? The red part was not in the Greek, the original language. So just realize that they're trying to help you, okay? But even in that, translators are, are struggling because they're also not just translating, they're interpreting, right? I mean, there is some level of interpretation that goes in, into any translation work. You go overseas and you're teaching. Um, I go to El Salvador, right? I'm with Jim Dowdy and I'm teaching something and there's someone that's translating that. That individual is having to hear what I'm saying, and interpret what I mean by what I'm saying, and then put it into their language. So this is the difficulty, the, 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 the challenge of translation work. And the spectrum of translations, when you look at transla- your, your English translation, is it, 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 a lot of this comes down to how much should the translator try to interpret what is being said, or should they just try to word for word just translate in a, in a more, um, uh, we would say, a, in a wooden sense, like just word for word, don't look at the whole verse and try to figure out what the verse means and then put it into English in completely different words, but stick to a word for word translation. That's, that's, that's spectrum. That's what you have on that spectrum. You have what is more, they call dynamic equivalence, which is look at larger sections, interpret them, and then figure out how to say that in English. And then you have those that are, we say, more literal translations, which are looking at more they're trying to get to the smallest possible thing. It's a word or it's a prepositional phrase, but the shortest possible piece and translate that over and not do so much interpreting. Okay, so when you get to a passage like this, your, your version doesn't have red letters. That's an, that's an interpretive choice, right? The people that, pen, that, that published that Bible are saying, we're not confident that that's actually Christ that's speaking in Revelation chapter 4. Okay, so you just have to deal with that. Uh, anytime you come to those passages, don't just assume because it's red that it's Jesus speaking, and don't just assume because it's not red that it's not Jesus speaking, right? You just got to dig into that. So uh, when you go through chapter 1, it's very obvious this is, this is Christ, okay? And the voice of Christ summons John upward, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. That is the purpose of the invitation, for Christ to show John what will transpire in the future. So having written the letters to the churches, John is, as this is a Donald Gray Barnhouse, he wrote this, John is called to heaven that he might look down upon all that should follow from the point of view of heaven itself, Any true understanding of the course of world events, he says, must be based on heaven's perspective of those events, end quote. And that seems to be the point, that John is invited to assume a new vantage point for the sake of the revelation that he was about to receive. So Jesus Christ tells John, come up here and and notice, he says, I will show you what must take place. So something that Christ begins doing in chapter, really in chapter 6, verse 1, when he starts the process of breaking the seals of the seven-sealed scroll. But this phrase is familiar to us, and this is the primary purpose of the revelation being given John. Again, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way back to the first verse of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, who? Christ, God gave 
Christ to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Or the last part of the threefold outline of the book in chapter 1, verse 19 that we looked at, the things which will take place after these things. In other words, those things dealing with what God has, de- excuse me, has destined for the future. A theme of long-standing and interest that has its roots back in the Old Testament, a theme that first comes into view in Daniel's description and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the great statue. Again, we'll be making references back to these kind of things as we go, but just uh, let me read a few of these. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar that what will take place in the latter days... This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future, literally after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Drop down to verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Again, it's the same phrase literally after this. Will take place after this, after these other kingdoms. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. On Tuesday of the week he was crucified. Jesus in his Olivet Discourse resumes this theme with the identical wording uh, they must happen. These are things that must happen. Matthew 24, verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So in the process of teaching His disciples, Jesus points out that these things that must happen, spoken of by Daniel, because Jesus in that passage in Matthew actually mentions Daniel. He refers back to this these things in Daniel chapter 2 and other chapters in Daniel, and says that in his day, right, at that point when Jesus was sharing these things with his disciples, he's speaking about these things and he's saying these things have not yet run their course. They were still at that point future. When we get to the seal judgments in connection with Revelation 6, we'll note the close parallelism between the Olivet Discourse and the symbolism of the seals. But for now, we can safely say that Jesus in his discourse was clearly anticipating what he was to show the Apostle John in much greater detail more than six decades later on the island of Patmos. At this point, John picks up the baton of this long-awaited series of happenings and develops them in far more detail than ever before. Therefore, that phrase in Revelation 1.1, the things which must soon take place, is the basis for the framework of the book. It's the same clause used at the end of verse 1 of chapter 4, which happens to be at the beginning of the portion of the book that is specifically apocalyptic in nature. And it is found again in chapter 22, verse 6, at the conclusion of the main body of the book. 
What does that all mean? It means, suggests G.K. Beale, that the revelation contained in this book is to bring to a climax an expectation that began at least as early as Daniel chapter 2. That this is the ultimate detailed account of events that must transpire in the outworking of God's redemptive program regarding the institution of the everlasting kingdom that will replace other earthly temporary kingdoms. The time has arrived to deal with what God has destined for the future. Now, the scenes in the book of Revelation often follow a pattern, again, is where, where a heavenly setting is described followed by an earthly setting. Bullinger, Bullinger in his commentary, he, he writes this, he says, Each vision in heaven is preparatory to the vision afterwards seen on earth. And what is seen on earth is the carrying out of the vision previously seen in heaven. The one is mutually explanatory of the other. The heavenly vision explains what is going to take place upon the earth, and the utterances in each heavenly vision set forth the special object of the earthly events which are to follow. The former vision of each pair is therefore the key to the latter. So as with all history, it's crucial that the interpreter of events taking place on earth has access to the perspective of God. Because without God's perspective, all is chaos and disarray. And all the, more so, all the more so at the end of history, when events upon the earth become extremely destructive, come in rapid fire succession and seemingly without purpose or plan. Yet as it is shown to John and conveyed to us, these events are carefully orchestrated and initiated by God himself as he acts to ultimately take back that which was lost in the garden and rightfully regained at Calvary. So it's a, it's a matter of perspective. In other words, there's, it's, it's as if to say, before we, before we get into the details of all the stuff that's going to unfold in redemptive history, you need to know something, and you need to know God is in control. Right? That's why you have, I think, Revelation 4 and 5 before Revelation 6. <laughs> It's, 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 as if, it's as if John needs to be anchored in that, right? So, John, this stuff is going to come, and it's going to make your knees shake, okay? But you, what will settle you down is to realize God is in control of all things, right? This is, this is, this is just an outworking in, in detail of God's redemptive plan. This has been the plan all along. In fact, we could go back to Daniel chapter 2, right? This is, this is just God fulfilling what he said he was going to do. But we need that perspective, and John needed that perspective. I was on the way into um, church this morning, and, and my son, he was, he was saying, I said, so man, school, whoo, you know, it's coming, right? Tomorrow, school starts back, and he said, dad, he said, you know, he said, if you really think about, <laughs> this, is, this is so classic. <laughs> he says, if you really stop, Dad, and you just think about your life and what you do every day, it's pretty boring. It, it's, it, I mean, he said, you know, I mean, I, Dad, I'll go, to, I'll go to school. We'll get to school. You have two classes, and you have a break, a snack. And then you go to two more classes, and then you have lunch. And then you have three more classes, and then you go home, or you have basketball practice, or you have a game, you do your homework, you go to bed. You get up the next morning, you do it all over again. And I'm like, <laughs> it's like so I mean, he's like, this, he's philosophizing. I mean, he's you know, I'm like, whoa, brother, you are burdened down this morning. 
And so I, I said, I said, you know, I said that, but that's that is that's a that's common to man, right? I mean, does Ecclesiastes not say something about the monotony of life, like this sort of round and round and round? And I said, think of it this way, son. Cease, because he goes to school here. He says, Cherokee Christian is just preparing you for life, right? Because when you get out there in the real world, you're going to get up, you're going to let the dogs out, you're going to shave, you're going to eat breakfast, you're going to go to your job, you're going to come home, you might watch a basketball game, <laughs> you won't do homework, hopefully, you might do something else, and then you go to bed and you wake up and you do it all over again. <laughs> so I'm like, this, this is preparatory, man. I mean, <laughs> that monotony, I mean, they were getting you ready, right? And then I, I told him, I said, but son, listen, I said, this is the thing that separates, because everybody's experiencing that, right? Unbelievers are experiencing that and believers are experiencing that. I said, but here's the difference. I said, when I wake up in the morning, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. Is it monotonous? Yeah. I mean, Solomon says, yes, there is a monotony about that. But it's a monotony that should drive you to trust and to worship the Lord, right? And so you can, you can have joy and peace in that monotonous cycle of life. Why? Because you know God is in control. He's on the throne. And I'm like, that is it, you know? And then I was just thinking about this. It's like, there's, there's some things that we look at sometimes. We're like, what do I do with that? And you have to be reminded, God, behind the scenes, right? And I, and I use this analogy when I said, it's like you pull the curtain back and I said, and it, God is doing his will. This is, this is exactly as God intended for it to be. But that's what, that's what gives one person hope. And that's what drives another person to suicide and despair because they're going through all that and they don't see any purpose in those things. And then notice what Christ says about these things to come. He says they must take place. You remember what Jesus said in John 10, 35. The Scripture cannot be broken. That's what Jesus said. The Scripture cannot be broken. God's prophetic word cannot be broken. The will of God, once having been spoken forth, is unstoppable. In other words, the events to be predicted are not just probable, they are fixed and certain because they are the outworking of God's will. And as we've said before, these predictions about the future are not designed to satisfy our curiosity, but to remind us of who is in control. So this verse is critical in interpreting the book. It introduces a new vision and a new section And it introduces the next major topic, the things which are yet future to the Apostle John as well as our own time, prophecies that describe what will happen after the period of the churches has run its course. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Once again, John was in the Spirit as he was at the beginning of his vision, back in chapter 1, verse 10. Ezekiel described his similar experience as the hand of the Lord being upon him. Later, he records in Ezekiel 8.3, He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in in the visions of God to Jerusalem. In subsequent visions, the Spirit took Ezekiel to Chaldea, to the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. The Apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven in a similar experience, although he does not mention the Spirit's involvement. Being in the Spirit, it doesn't simply refer to sort of spiritual or physical transport to a new location or vantage point, but to a unique empowerment by the Spirit to receive special Relevatory communication from God. The ability, we might say, to hear or to see, the ability to hear from God, and in this case... 
By the miraculous work of the Spirit, John was transported from Patmos to heaven in such a way that all of his senses were operative. His, his ears heard things, his eyes saw things, his emotions were as real as though his body was literally in heaven instead of remaining on Patmos. And so John enters another ecstatic state into a prophetic trance. And what does he see? A throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Prior to being given great revelation, prophets were often exposed to the glory of God. Earlier, John himself saw the glorified Lord Jesus. And now he will be shown the throne room of heaven. We think of of Moses, his experience. Isaiah had a similar vision of God on his throne. Uh, this, is, this is where uh, Jesus is, is presented to the ancient, uh, ancient of days to receive his kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. In Ezekiel's vision, there was something, verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 26 says, there was something resembling a throne and on it high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Isaiah also saw the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted and the, tra- and the train of his robe filling the temple. By the way, in John chapter 12, John identifies the carpenter of Galilee as Yahweh himself, quoting from Isaiah's temple vision of Yahweh in Isaiah 6. Except in that passage in John, the pronoun him in that context is Jesus, implying that when Isaiah saw Yahweh, he was actually seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. So we have here in Revelation 4, we have this central point, a throne, we have a central figure, God Himself. Now, in the Old Testament, we often find passages that picture heaven itself as God's throne. For instance, Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? Then there are other places where it, seemed, it sees God enthroned in heaven. For example, Psalm 11, verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. And this this is the the way that I think we're to understand what is going on in Revelation 4. There is this huge throne room of indescribable splendor. What we'll see later is how this, this picture of the throne room merges with that of a heavenly temple. So the temple and the throne room are sort of interrelated throughout the book. R.H. Charles suggested that the heavenly throne was probably a part of the heavenly temple as seen by the presence of the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. See this in Revelation 8.3 and in chapter 11, verse 19. So the throne of God is extremely prominent throughout John's prophecy. In fact, in this chapter alone, if you were to just... If you didn't know anything about the Bible (laughs) and you just read chapter 4 and just said, what is this chapter about just based on the repetition of this word, you would say it has something to do with the throne, right? Thirteen times in 11 verses, we find this Greek term translated as throne. Eleven of those 13 occurrences referring to the throne of God itself. Why such an emphasis? Because it symbolizes the sovereignty of God exercised in judgment. 
That is to say, when we see the outworking of God's wrath described in the body of the apocalypse, where does it originate? Its point of origin is the throne of God. All these judgments, okay, all these judgments that are about to come upon the earth, no matter how fantastical, no matter how destructive, no matter how powerful, they all come as an edict from this throne. That is to say, it is not by committee, it is not democratic, there is no questioning of it, right? It is absolute. So when, 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 when God says this is going to happen, what do you find? It happens. And so John in his prophetic apprehension arrives in heaven, the third heaven, and he sees a throne in its place. And what else? He sees one sitting on the throne. And who is the one sitting on the throne? It is God the Father. It's not Christ. How do we know that? Because in the next chapter, Christ comes to the one on the throne to receive the scroll with the seven seals. So the one pictured here is distinguished from Christ, or as we'll see, the Lamb. See this in chapter 5, verse 5, and verse 7, chapter 6, verse 16, chapter 7, verse 10. We also know that this is not the Spirit, because this one on the throne is distinguished from the Spirit. We'll get to this next week. Uh, we see that in verse 5 of chapter 4. Rather, this is the one whose wrath, along with that of the Lamb, is poured out upon the earth dwellers. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? This is also the one to whom, along with the Lamb, salvation belongs. Revelation 7, 10, or 7, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is God the Father. And he is sitting on the throne, which emphasizes his ultimate rule and control of all that transpires in the book. Even the final manifestation of evil that we'll see is dependent upon permission being granted from the Father. The rider in in Revelation 6-4 is granted to take peace from the earth that men would, 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 would slay one another. Angels are granted authority to harm earth and to, and, and to harm the sea. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist is given authority to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the false prophet will perform signs that counterfeit Christ's miracles and will give the image of Antichrist the appearance of life. How? Because it has been granted to him to do these things. And that's the phrase you see. It's, it was granted to the angels to do that. It was granted to the writer to do that. It was granted to the Antichrist. God is completely sovereign over the affairs of history. Even though those who participate in sin are fully responsible moral agents. So God's throne is a prominent feature throughout the book and indicates His ultimate rule as judge. And again, we'll get to this, Revelation 20 Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So 
what John sees here is it's glorious. And what he sees is real. I mean, this isn't some imagined thing. I mean, this is, this is real. Again, Barnhouse writes, Heaven is a material place. John saw a throne. If the objection is that he was in the Spirit and that it might be a spiritual throne, we would answer that the body of Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and that our Lord said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye, ye see me have. Luke twenty four thirty nine, And it was, the, it was that body which ascended into heaven. There must be a material heaven or there was no ascension. And if there's no ascension, there was no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. Now, what do, we, what do we learn about this throne and the one who occupies it? Verse 3, and we'll stop. Come back to this next week. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Again, when I read this and as we work through these verses, it's, I can only imagine, it's like John is struggling to describe, right? I mean, he's, he's struggling, as, as Ezekiel did, as others did, to describe these things. They were majestic, they were, they were awe-inspiring, uh, they were humbling. They're not anything like what people describe today when they say that they took a trip to heaven. You know, people that do that. And they want to get caught up in all these really un- unnecessary, <laughs> they keep all these un- unnecessary specifics. I mean, this is, this is God on his throne. That's what John is really consumed with. And, it, and again, we'll note as we walk through and just try to, even these stones, you just try to figure out what, what are these things, right? And you don't actually ever get a description of as if he's, as if he's even trying to sort of describe God in, in human form. Right, it's it's light, it's flashes, it's sounds, it's gems, it's translucent things reflecting here and there. What is all that? And I don't think the details are insignificant. I mean, we'll look at the details, but again, folks, it's at the end of the day, what is it meant to do? It's meant to overwhelm us, right? This is our God. Our God is holy. Our God is a God of wrath. Our God is a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness. And I'll just say this. The the problem with our churches and the problem with ministries is that we do not see God rightly. We do not see God rightly. And having not seen God rightly because we don't really believe what the revelation of God says, we don't see our sin rightly, and therefore we don't respond rightly. But God is the sovereign, omnipotent creator of the universe, sitting on his throne as its ruler. So let not your heart be troubled, right? It's a new year. Let not your heart be troubled. Our God reigns. This is supernatural revelation. We trust it. It is from God. It is by him. It is about him. And I'll end with this. Psalm 47, verse 5. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the tr- sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. That, by the way, is why we're here, right? That's what we're here. We're here to learn about God. We're here to worship God rightly. Right, so my prayer is that this, as we go through these things again, I'm, I'm as fascinated as as I think you are about these things, and we'll try to 
pick out the symbolism and say, you know, what do these stones mean and what is this encircling rainbow of emerald and all that, all that's great stuff. But again, it needs to humble us, right? And it needs to remind us God is in control. And that's who we're about to worship as a church family, that God who sits and who reigns over all things. All right, what else is going on around the throne and before the throne and what kind of activity was going on there? For those things, we'll have to pick up, right? We'll come back to them next week. We'll pick up in chapter three or in uh, chapter four, verse three. All right, thanks for your time, folks.